Welcome to Planning for the Certainty of Uncertainty podcast with Jonathan Cutton, Private Wealth Advisor, 2019 Barron's Hall of Fame Advisor, 2021 Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisor, and CEO of Cutton Wealth Management, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC. This podcast offers a broad range of financial planning concepts to help you and your loved ones live brilliantly now and in the future. Jonathan will provide you with concepts that bring you confidence, simplicity, and success on your journey to financial and retirement security. Join us as we explore ways to help you feel more assured, connected, and in control of your financial life. Now, onto the show. Hello and welcome to another Planning for the Certainty of Uncertainty podcast with John Cutton. Now today we're going to talk about keeping portfolio management simple. There are a lot of things that go into portfolio management and one of the greatest things that advisors can do is take a very complex under a topic like this and make it so that you can understand it as a client. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here again today. Now, where do we even begin with this, brother? Because I mean, honestly, when you look at this, portfolio management is a really big brushstroke. So where would you like to begin today? I think your opening remark was a good one, right? The old acronym KISS, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Um, not to, to use the stupid word out there too early in the, uh, in the session, but... Uh, you know, Matt, from my perspective, we've done a couple of uh, podcasts, right? We've talked a little bit about asset allocation. We've talked a little bit about the three bucket theory. And those are just, you know, kind of tools that we use to educate our clients so that we can take some of the mystery, if you will, and some of the complexity out of how to properly build a portfolio. And you know, Matt, when you think about today's world, you know, of late there's been a bunch of volatility. We've been in a you know a ten year bull market right up until uh, recent times, and who knows where the markets will head? It's hard to predict, and maybe we're still in a bull market. Who actually really knows? But when you think about that, and you think about hearing about Bitcoin and NFTs, and you think about private equity and hedge funds. And there's so much noise out there. And while all of those strategies have a place in some folks' portfolios, right? And it depends on your risk tolerance, your goals, your age, the liquidity and asset level that you have. I feel like everyone wants to spend time on those investments. And really investing doesn't have to be for 95% of the population that complex and that kind of high risk reward, if you will. So let's talk about asset allocation. I'd like for you to start there, if you don't mind. It's a good foundation for our topic today. Yeah, that's great. I think um, you know when I think about asset allocation, it's a fancier word for diversification. And simply put, when, when we think about how to build a portfolio for a client, we're thinking about their time frame, how long until the goal, we're thinking about their risk tolerance, understanding what risk really means to the client. And everyone has a different risk tolerance. Most I've found, Matt, in 26, 27 years of doing this since 1994, I don't know how long that is, but it's been a while. Most dramatically overestimate what their real risk tolerance is. So when I think about asset allocation, you're melding those type of things together and you're trying to build a portfolio that's diversified where you've got the ability 
to smooth out the rates of return. So everything in the portfolio isn't going up at the same time, and everything therefore in the portfolio isn't going down in the same time. What we really look at, we call that, or what modern portfolio theory would call that, is having investments that have inverse correlations together. And quite simply, it's about what's the right exposure to the equity markets, what's the right exposure to cash, what's the right exposure to debt or fixed income, bonds, et cetera, and then what types of equities, fixed income, cash type holdings should you have in your portfolio? You said risk tolerance, which I think is an interesting conversation, but how do you, from a portfolio management simplification perspective, manage risk tolerance versus timeline versus need? How, how do you help create a portfolio and keep it simple and understandable, keeping those things in mind? Yeah, so I would say that's a really interesting question, Matt. So need is a funny word. Need is the one I'm going to focus on, which is if a client came into my office and said, hey, I have $100,000 put away from my retirement. And we went through the financial planning process and they were 55 years old. And they said, my goal is to retire in two years, but I need a million dollars is what we found out. That need doesn't pass what I call the acid test. It's not realistic. So I would not advise that client to say, well, let's take an inordinate amount of risk and hope we get lucky and hit a home run so we can grow your $100,000 to a million hypothetically. So the flip side of saying that is, I'll give you a different scenario, Matt. You come into my office and you and your lovely wife uh, were school teachers and you both have two unbelievable pensions. Between the two of you, you have $150,000 a year in pension, and you um, have a million dollars put away, and you only need $50,000 a year for your lifestyle. So your pension, you'll have some social security, you have a million dollars. Your need is a lot less for rate of return than most because you've actually done an amazing job living within your means and preparing for retirement. So we would have a conversation about in that scenario, there would be two choices, probably more than two, but two that I can think of. One would be we can manage your portfolio really conservatively because you've earned it and you've worked really hard for it. The second could be you might have some goals to do some bigger things, buy a beach house, leave a big inheritance to your children. You might have charitable intentions, pay for your grandchildren's college, in which case we might build your portfolio based on your need to be slightly more aggressive because you've actually earned the right that you could actually lose money in your portfolio, but because your pension and your social security and your lifestyle is so insignificant relative to your guaranteed income sources, you in fact could choose to be more aggressive and there wouldn't be a real, real big risk to you and your family because you've kind of self insured, if you will, based on the level of savings and income that you're going to have. Does that make some sense? It does. And what an interesting dichotomy and perspective there. I've heard from advisors, you know, keeping on this topic, that there are lots of people who come in who don't spend anywhere near what they could to live the retirement that they potentially could because they have been so frugal for so long 
So that's interesting that you say that. Now, I want to talk about rebalancing. I, I, I want to kind of, yes, there's, I want you to share some good stories throughout like you just did, but I, there's some brass tacks that we need to hammer in here. And I don't really think that a lot of people understand what rebalancing is. When do you do it? How do you do it? Are there triggers for you to rebalance at different times? Would you mind breaking down Cut and Wealth Management's philosophy on that? Yeah, great question again. So let's take a hypothetical client and let's assume that their portfolio, we can make it really simple, is 50% in equities, meaning stock-oriented investments, and 50% in fixed income, meaning bonds and income-oriented investment. Now, of course, Matt, there'd be some percentage in large cap value and large cap growth and mid cap and, and so on, et cetera, and the same on the fixed income side. But simply put, rebalancing is a is a systematic way to ensure that not necessarily always at the most opportune time because you can't time the market but that you are consistently locking in some level of profit that you earn and you are consistently buying securities that have not performed best in class in a particular year so as a rule of thumb our philosophy is no less than once a year many times quarterly we look to rebalance our clients portfolios and then in essence when a market is in essence in a unpredictable fashion moving whether it be up or down we get a huge rise in the market could be a good time to take some profits we get a quick downside in a in the market could be a time to buy some more of that particular indice or that particular market. So we don't look to call tops and bottoms, but we do look to have a consistent way to rebalance on a regular basis. That's almost, Matt, same time every year, same four times every year. And then based on market behavior, if we see inconsistencies, we will take advantage of opportunities if we think it's a good time uh, to be considering a rebalance from that perspective. So simplest way to think about it, go back to my 50-50. Let's say we have an amazing year in the stock market and the market's up 20%. And let's say that we have a flat year in the bond market and it does zero, just stays flat, does absolutely nothing. So if we had a million dollars in a portfolio, so I could just do the math easily in my head, if half of that portfolio, which would be 500,000, was in stocks, which earned 20% in my example, we would have earned $100,000. And if 500,000 of my portfolio was in bonds, which had got a 0% rate of return in my example, it would still be worth $500,000. So we would now have $1.1 million in a portfolio, but we would now have 600,000 of that million one would ultimately be in the stock oriented investments and only 500 would actually be in the fixed income so in reality matt my client's risk tolerance probably didn't change if we should have been a 50 50 mix in fact they got a year older so if anything maybe they'd get more conservative likely not more aggressive so what we would want to do in that scenario is we'd want to actually sell the appreciated assets and rebalance so on the million one portfolio we would now have five hundred and fifty thousand dollars back to fifty percent in the equity side or stock side and we would now have five hundred and fifty by buying more 
on the fixed income or bond side. Now, of course, there's taxes to contend with and rebalancing and timing from a capital gain perspective. So there's a lot that goes into it from a tax perspective, and you should always check with your, you know, your CPA or tax advisor. But overall, keeping it really simple, that's how we look at rebalancing. You used the word index, you used large cap, you used the word markets. Can you pull that apart a little bit more? Because I think when people think about markets, they just think about the S&P and the Dow and the NASDAQ. You're actually talking about different markets within those markets of tech, large caps, all of those sorts of things. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit? Yeah. So part part of building um, a, a diversified portfolio, at least from our perspective, is having the right representation of different asset classes. So there's over 20 different asset classes out there. Most just think stocks, bonds, maybe real estate and cash. But when you start to think about stocks, Matt, as an example, you have, first of all, what what the, the, the industry would call growth-oriented stocks versus value-oriented stocks. Now, a growth-oriented stock is exactly what it sounds like. Generally, companies that are fast-paced growth, looking to grow, that investors generally invest in those companies because they're deemed to be or we believe they'll be dominant in the marketplace. And I won't use any names on a podcast, but we get the idea of what those companies are. Where a value-oriented play or value-oriented stock or mutual fund uh, or exchange-traded fund is really digging deeper, not that growth-oriented funds don't, but deeper uh, into the, the, the P.E. ratio, uh, price-earnings ratio, and the, the, the fundamentals, I'll say, of the particular security. And really what they're looking to do is buy securities that have a lower or, or that, that there's an intrinsic value, meaning that based on all of the data, it appears as if the price of the security today is less than what the value of the organization would. And for some reason, there's this inequality. So it's a bargain. And that's how the, the market would look at it. No different. One of the things I always like to say, going back to rebalancing, is if you go into the supermarket and, you know, Bumblebee tuna or XYZ tuna is 15% sale, you go out and what do you do? You buy 10 or 12 cans, right? And if it's not on sale, you wait until it's on sale. It's the same thing with rebalancing. When things go down, uh, that's when you want to actually you know, purchase them. And the same, Matt, can be true when you think value or growth. There are small cap stocks, which are just what they sound like, smaller capitalization, less, not, not as much of a market share in the value of those securities, mid cap, large cap. Same on the growth, same on the value side. International global technology you can get into sectors so it gets pretty detailed you know outside of what we'll probably want to talk about here same on the fixed income side high grade low grade intermediate long-term municipal high yield the list goes on government tips treasury inflated protected securities treasuries so there's lots of different asset classes and really it's about understanding the the client's goals, tax situation, risk tolerance, and saying, well, how do I create a blend that's gonna help them to ultimately achieve their goals staying within their risk tolerance? What about 
passive investing. This is something that I've heard in the past that other advisors have talked about. What is the difference between active investing and passive investing? And how does that apply to keeping portfolio management simple? Yep. So you know, to me, a blend of both is what we generally do for clients because I don't believe there's one right or wrong way to do things. I mean, let's face it, folks, you know, managing a portfolio is not a science. It's an art. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. There's some tried and true principles uh, that we, we want to follow. And it's really about, to me, taking that emotion out of it and having a process. I like to say, let's build a plan, let's build a process, and let's consistently execute on that plan. But I look at active management means we're actually trying to outperform indexes. So you talked before, Matt, about the Dow or the S&P or the NASDAQ or the Russell, so on, et cetera. When you're an active manager, what you're trying to do is pick stocks and or bonds that you believe will outperform the broad-based market. And in essence, you know, as a rule of thumb, there's more cost associated with having a financial advisor or a money manager or a mutual fund look to do all that research so that they can actually try to outperform the market. Statistically speaking, I'll just say, more actively managed mutual funds underperform the index than outperform the index. So you pay an extra fee, more time than not, you don't outperform the index by history. Now, some do, and some have a long track record of doing that. And as long as we find those right managers, there's what's called alpha, not to get too technical, what just means performance above and beyond. So based, based on the input from a manager or an advisor. Now, passive investing is, or indexing sometimes is in essence, buying a basket of securities or buying an index. And it's primarily a buy and hold strategy. And only when that index will actually change because the, the securities that make up that index very few changes are actually ever made. Now, the, the benefit, one of the major benefits to that, Matt, is number one, with active management, particularly if it's non-qualified, meaning after-tax money, there's a lot of trading and that creates taxable events. So there's more to investing than just rate of return. There's also the tax efficiency of the investments. And in addition to that, the costs are generally a little higher because of the trading costs and the manager's costs and research and so on, et cetera. Now, in a passively manager and say an, an exchange traded fund or an index fund, which is more of a buy and hold a basket of securities, because there's not that level of research and trading, the cost can be a lot less. And because there's not that level of trading, the tax consequences can be less as well. Not not none, but less. So we're big believers in our practice of trying to do both, because like I said, you know, there are outside managers that can outperform the market and have a track record of doing that fairly consistently. But the bulk of our assets are generally more passively managed based on the right asset allocation for that client and following the principles of making sure you have the right diversification rebalancing, so on, et cetera. 
when you get closer to retirement or when you're in retirement, the next question that I have is, is probably not as applicable, but when you're in the growth or depositing phase of your asset accumulation, dollar cost averaging is brought up. How do you communicate that when it comes to portfolio management? Yeah, big believer in dollar cost averaging and dollar cost averaging, simply put, is putting consistent investments, usually bi-weekly or monthly, into a diversified portfolio. So we're big advocates of dollar cost averaging, particularly when a lump sum is going to be invested as well. So dollar cost averaging is a great way to save money right through your paycheck or through a deduction from your bank account to build wealth. But lots of times a client will retire, as an example, it's a life-changing event, or they'll sell a home, et cetera, and they'll come into a new lump sum of money. And many times they'll have a different purpose. As an example, you retire, your life savings or your biggest asset is your 401k, you hire a financial advisor because you've left what I'll call the accumulation phase, which is the ability to build your asset, right, your nest egg, but now you've actually started the access phase of the retirement phase, and you actually have to turn that lump sum asset into a consistent income because you're no longer right earning an income from your job because you're retired. Um, and that's a mistake that I've seen. And, and again, depending on where the client's risk tolerance is and lots of variables, where the markets are, we're believers in at the very least having a conversation with a client who might be rolling over 200,000, 500,000, $2 million from their 401k about not necessarily, particularly if they're going to rely on it from an income, taking that lump sum and putting it directly into the market. So sometimes we'll put a piece in the market today or into their diversified portfolio. And then over time, maybe over a 12 or 18 or 24 month period, slowly rebuild that portfolio so that you're not buying potentially into a high which could have a really devastating effect, particularly if you're in your retirement uh, timeframe. All right. My favorite question I ever ask you on any of these shows is, what didn't I ask you? What, what else do we need to cover with portfolio management and keeping it simple that I didn't ask you today? Yeah. You know, I think as always, you did an amazing job, Matt, of asking questions. Um, you know, the, the only thing I'd add, I touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, we also find a lot of a lot of prospective clients that sometimes choose not to engage us. They'll come in and we'll meet them. And for whatever reason, our messaging might not resonate with them, are consumed with their portfolios. If you're checking your, your, your smartphone or your computer every day to say, what did the market do today? Did my portfolio go up? How much did I make? What, on, what went on with this stock or what's going on with my Bitcoin or whatever it may be? You're probably not properly allocated. To me, what we look for for our clients is a client who says, hey, you know what? Looking at my statement once a month, once a quarter, once a year at the very least, and I think it should be more than once a year, by the way, is enough for me because I understand that I'm diversified. I've got my three buckets of money. I have a smart place to go, regardless of what actually happens in my situation. And I understand it's time in the market, not timing the market. And what happens every day is not going to actually have an effect. And again, not to say there's not folks out there that have figured out how to day trade and do all these different things. 
my experience since 1994 is building a smart, diversified portfolio, rebalancing on a regular basis, outsourcing security selection for the most part. And don't get me wrong, taking a risk here or there, right? For many people and having, you know, kind of like a racehorse in the portfolio. It just depends on your situation, your risk tolerance, your time frame, and your liquidity. So that's, that would be, uh, Matt, my kind of, you know, uh, ending comment here is if it takes that much of your time and attention, you're probably in a situation that you're spending more time speculating um, than you are just putting together a sound portfolio. And as for the last podcast that we uh, recorded, uh, it also probably means that you're making behavioral decisions that are actually contrary to the long-term direction that you want to go. Because when people are hyper-focused on that, instead of understanding to delegate it to professionals, they a lot of times make very, very poor decisions. John, thank you very much for walking us through how you can understand how to keep portfolio management simple, how that applies to you in even different stages of your savings and life. Thanks for your time today. Got it. Thanks again for having me, Matt. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to Planning for the Certainty of Uncertainty podcast with Jonathan Cutton, Private Wealth Advisor, 2019 Barron's Hall of Fame Advisor, 2021 Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisor. Cutton Wealth Management offers comprehensive financial advice and a broad range of solutions to help you and your loved ones live brilliantly now and in the future. Have questions? Contact us at cutinwealthmanagement at ampf.com or give us a call at 800-455-4595. Don't forget to click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast provides general information, is not intended to provide investment advice, and does not account for individual investor circumstances. Investment decisions should always be made based on an investor's specific circumstances. Neither past performance nor any forecast guarantees future results. Investment products are not insured, are not guaranteed by any financial institution or governmental entity and involve investment risks, including loss of principal. Ameriprise Financial does not offer tax or legal advice. Consult your tax advisor or attorney. Ameriprise Financial has not reviewed and does not endorse any other podcast channel or material. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Barron's generates its rankings from a formulaic analysis of surveys answered by candidates regarding assets, revenue, quality of practice, including an advisor's regulatory and compliance record. Barron's is a registered trademark of Dow Jones LP, all rights reserved. This award is not indicative of the advisor's future performance. Neither Ameriprise Financial nor its advisors pay a fee to Barron's in exchange for the ranking. Barron's Hall of Fame advisors have been ranked for 10 or more years on one of the following lists. Barron's Top 100 Financial Advisors, Barron's Top 100 Women Financial Advisors, or Barron's Top 100 Independent Financial Advisors. Barron's generates its ranking from a formulaic analysis of surveys answered by candidates regarding assets, revenue, and quality of practice, including an advisor's regulatory and compliance record. Barron's is a registered trademark of Dow Jones LP, all rights reserved. This award is not indicative of the advisor's future performance. 
neither Ameriprise Financial nor its advisors pay a fee to Barron's in the exchange for the ranking. This ranking was developed by Shook Research and is based on an in-person and telephone due diligence meetings to evaluate each advisor qualitatively. A major component of a ranking algorithm that includes client retention, industry experience, review of compliance records, and firm nominations as well as a quantitative review that includes assets under management and revenue generated for their firms. Investment performance is not a criterion because client objectives and risk tolerances vary, and advisors rarely have audited performance reports. Rankings are based on the opinions of Shook Research LLC and not indicative of future performance or representative of any one client's experience. Neither Forbes nor Shook Research receive compensation in exchange for the placement on the ranking. For more information, www.shookresearch.com. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Ameriprise Financial Advisors are individually registered to do business only in certain U.S. states. Please refer to an advisor's personal website for additional details. An index is a statistical composite that is not managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. The S&P 500 index is a basket of 500 stocks that are considered to be widely held. The S&P 500 index is weighted by market value, shares outstanding times share price, and its performance is thought to be representative of the stock market as a whole. The S&P 500 index was created in 1957, although it has been extrapolated backwards to several decades earlier for performance comparison purposes. This index provides a broad snapshot of the overall U.S. equity market. Over 70% of all U.S. equity value is tracked by the S&P 500. Inclusion in the index is determined by Standard & Poor's and is based upon their market size, liquidity, and sector. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, DJIA, is likely the most widely known measure of American stock market indicators. The index is more than 100 years old, includes only 30 individual stocks, and is comprised of the largest, most established firms across a broad range of industries. The DJIA is calculated based on share price, providing a greater weighting within the index to those companies with a higher share price. Due to the small number of issues contained in the index, it does not always provide the most accurate measure of aggregate stock market performance. The NASDAQ Composite Index is a market capitalization weighted index of all common stocks listed on National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotation System, NASDAQ. The NASDAQ Composite dates back to 1971, which is when the NASDAQ exchange was first formalized. Given that this is a market capitalization weighted index and the fact that the largest market capitalization stocks trading on the exchange are technology-related issues, the index is commonly referenced as a measure of technology stock performance and thus may not be a good indicator of the market as a whole. The Russell 2000 Index measures the performance of the small cap segment of the U.S. equity universe. The Russell 2000 is constructed to provide a comprehensive and unbiased small cap barometer and is completely reconstituted annually to ensure larger stocks do not distort the performance and characteristics of the true small cap opportunity set. The Russell 2000 includes the smallest 2000 securities in the Russell 3000. The hypothetical rate of return is for illustration purposes only and is not meant to represent the past or future returns of any specific investment or investment strategy or to imply guaranteed earnings. This illustration does not reflect sales charges or other expenses that may be required for some investments. Neither asset allocation nor diversification assures a profit or protects against loss. Dollar cost averaging is a method of investing that helps reduce the risks of market timing by investing a fixed amount at regular intervals. When prices are low, your investment purchases more shares. When prices rise, you purchase fewer shares. 
Over time, the average cost of your shares will usually be lower than the average price of those shares. It does not assure a profit or protect against losses in a declining market. However, over longer periods of time, it can be an effective means of accumulating shares. Investors should consider their ability to continue investing through periods of low market prices. Stock investments involve risk, including loss of principal. High-quality stocks may be appropriate for some investment strategies. Ensure that your investment objectives, time horizon, and risk tolerance are aligned with investing in stocks as they can lose value. Growth securities, at times, may not perform as well as value securities or the stock market in general and may be out of favor with investors. Value securities may be unprofitable if the market fails to recognize their intrinsic worth or the portfolio manager misgaged that worth. There are risks associated with fixed income investments, including credit risk, interest rate risk, and prepayment and extension risk. In general, bond prices rise when interest rates fall, and vice versa. This effect is usually more pronounced for longer-term securities.